0: learned anything from these past couple of years my fellow Americans is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare care related fields to keep you a beat ahead.
1: If everybody is a racist then nobody is safe in the operating room. I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to America Out Loud, Pulse. Medicine as a profession has advanced to include all races and males and females. My father went to an all-Black college and medical school. I went to a white college and medical school. When I was in medical school, the OBGYN department accepted its first female resident, Now, well over half of OBGYNs are female. Times change, thank goodness. Over time, medicine as a science has advanced to treat and cure more and more complex conditions. Unfortunately, there are certain groups of patients who don't have access to good medical care. Sometimes this is because they have no insurance or they have medicaid for insurance and a lot of doctors don't accept that some have no transportation or babysitting or a myriad of other socioeconomic issues standing in their way we have to do our best to sit down as a healthcare team and work on getting proper medical care to all americans it seems though instead of doing the hard work of getting down to the root of the problems Academia has taken the easy way out by deciding that the cause of healthcare disparities is racism. Now, all solutions start and end with racism. And now there's indoctrination into reverse racism. The Academicians and Mainstream Medical Association write articles that erroneously conclude that minority patients are better off by having a doctor of the same skin color. Of course, this only works for patients of color. A white patient would be a racist if he asked for a white doctor. This obsession with race is clouding deeper societal issues. It's also violating Hippocrates' oath to treat all patients with the same level of respect. My guest today has taken this fight against indoctrinations to the streets, so to speak, first to the top of the American College of Surgeons, and then in the National Review. My guest today is Dr. Richard Bosshart. He is a board-certified plastic surgeon in private practice in Florida for well over 33 years. He graduated from University of Miami Medical School and completed his general surgery training in the U.S. Naval Hospital in Oakland, California. I used to live down the street from that. After serving as a surgeon in The U.S. Naval Hospital in Okinawa, Dr. Boshart returned to Miami to train in plastic surgery. He used to write a medical column entitled House Calls for the Orlando Sentinel and was a contributing writer to the Lake Healthy Living magazine for several years. And importantly, he's a member of the American Society of Plastic Surgeons and a fellow in the American College of Surgeons welcome to the show, Dr. Bosshart.
0: Thank you, Marilyn. I'm delighted to be here.
1: Well, let's just get started. First, just so people know kind of about medical societies, you know, we're board certified by a board of whatever specialty you are, and you pass certain tests, written and oral tests, so you can say you're board certified and that you know, you're a good old-fashioned specialist and have the credentials for that. And then each specialty has a society. Uh, The AMA is sort of a general group of doctors, even though only 17% of doctors even belong to the AMA. But most people belong to their professional society. So tell us about these societies and what purpose they serve and have have they become woke like everything else that's going on these days?
0: Well, I belong to, as you said, two societies. I belong to my specialty society, the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. And admittance to that is basically a uh, practically guaranteed, I would say, if you are a uh, doctor who has met the qualifications for board certification by the American Board of Plastic Surgery, and you don't have any black marks against you, you can, you know, apply for uh, membership in the American Society of Plastic. I Science.
1: have to stop you right there. What do you mean by black marks? That's a well, microaggression it's... doctor.
0: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> now I guess if you don't have anything in your background that would, that would, you know, call into question your character or, you know, you're not a felon, you haven't uh, had a zillion malpractice suits. Uh, I, I don't think the the ASPS uh, is terribly selective once you are board certified. I think that if you are board certified in plastic surgery and you've kept your nose clean, you pretty much are going to be accepted as a member. I always regarded the ACS, the American College of Surgeons, as a little bit different. Um, it was, uh, there's, there's nothing that, I add to my name or my title by being a member of the ASPS, the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. I used to look at surgeons around me as a medical student and see that many of them had this FACS after their MD. And I soon found out that that stood for Fellow of the American College of Surgeons. And I thought, gee, what is that? And as I inquired, I learned that it is the oldest and largest organization representing surgery and surgeons. Um, it was founded in 1913, and uh, to be uh, a fellow is considered to be somewhat of an honor. You have to be recommended by two uh, fellows of the uh, ACS. You have to have been in practice for a while and have a clean practice record, and they go through a process that that is a little bit like medical school in the sense that there's an actual commencement ceremony where you attend and you put on a robe and you go up on stage with your other the other candidates and you take an oath, uh, very much like the Hippocratic Oath that we took as medical students. And once you do these things, you are entitled to put FACS after your name. And I was very proud to do that. I felt like the, the American College of Surgeons was my organization representing the profession of surgery all encompassing including my specialty of plastic surgery general surgery thoracic surgery orthopedic surgery you know you name it and so to me it was a, a pretty big deal and i've always had that and worn that facs very proudly um the the purpose of the uh, acs is uh, encapsulated in its mission statement which is very brief it's, it says to serve all with skill and fidelity and the term fidelity is kind of an old term that you could substitute the word trust for so to serve all with skill and trust which means that our service is to all people that need our services and we are to practice with the utmost of skill and in a manner that our patients will trust us uh i think that that particular uh all-encompassing mission if you will uh, has been somewhat hijacked. And whereas the the focus of the ACS used to be to uh, help surgeons to increase their competency, to provide educational opportunities, to provide for networking opportunities, you know, among surgeons, um, it shifted. And that shift occurred pretty dramatically uh, during the the COVID pandemic following the the death of uh, George Floyd. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time, but I'll be happy to to carry that a bit further if you want to hear exactly what happened that raised my awareness of problems.
1: Well, go ahead. Start in with that. I know you say that your association declared it was racist and everybody was racist. I mean, did they have any evidence for that?
0: No, That that's <laughs> the short. That's pretty much the complete answer. Um, the there was a tremendous rush i mean it, it was almost like a stampede throughout the country after george floyd was killed and and obviously that was tragic shouldn't have happened uh, the people that did this were were appropriately tried and punished um and um but it led to this this terrible um idea that all of america is basically irredeemably racist it is it was founded on racism racism infuses every aspect of our society uh institutions organizations government uh, education business uh and all these companies and, and and organizations couldn't move fast enough to jump on this bandwagon of you know, basically uh, admitting guilt for racism within their particular uh, organizations. The ACS did exactly the same thing within weeks. They had assembled a task force that was designed to, and and this is the way they put it, this is not my word, this is their word. They, They organized a task force to address the issue of structural racism in the ACS. There wasn't even a question whether there was racism or not. It was assumed. Um, and when you ask for evidence, uh, the only evidence that's ever been put forth is the presence of disparities. And they talk about disparities by uh, uh, showing how the, the representation of blacks in the ACS is not commensurate with their, their uh, demographic uh, proportion in, this, in society at large uh, that surgeons, they're not enough black surgeons. Uh, the worst thing they did on, and this was the thing that, um, really, really uh, was repugnant to me was they began to actually put out claims. And this is coming from the leadership of the ACS that you can make an argument that it be, be, would be best if patients be treated by surgeons of their own race. Um, as though somehow they're going to have better outcomes. And disparate outcomes in minorities might be improved or corrected by doing that. So, Well, um, and, and just so
1: our audience knows, since not everybody has been in the operating room and has seen the insides of people's bodies, when somebody goes to the operating room and they have surgery, The body is draped with a big surgical drape, and then there's towels that go around the incision. And if somebody were to walk in the room and you look on the inside, you wouldn't know if that person was black, brown, or white, would you?
0: Absolutely not.
1: So do you really think surgeons as they're taking out that gallbladder or thinking, hmm, this is a black patient's gallbladder. I don't think I'll do as good of a job.
0: (sighs) Can you think of a more poisonous idea to put out that would destroy trust between patients and surgeons? And the the fact of the matter is, there are not enough minority surgeons to go around, so you're going to have many minority patients being approached by a surgeon of a different race, And they will have heard all these terrible things, including coming from a reputable organization like the American College of Surgeons. And they're they're not going to be able to to avoid wondering, am I going to get the best care in the hands of this individual? Um, That that was was the turning point for me when I saw that, I said, "I, I cannot stay silent. I've got to do something. And that's when I began my, my vocal and public protests, starting with the discussion forum on the website for the American College of Surgeons, in which I stated matter-of-factly that I disagreed with this, and if this was the direction of the college, then I would see no uh, way out of it but for me to drop my fellowship and leave. I could not stay in, a, in an organization that would profess these kinds of horrible um, claims. Uh, that I felt had no basis. Um, and that led to a, a tremendous engagement going on months and months with surgeons in the ACS, two thirds of whom, by the way, agreed with me. Uh, and eventually it it uh, landed me an invitation by the Board of Regents to meet with them on a Zoom call. Um, I guess I made enough noise that I, I came to their attention. Um, and uh, I invited uh, a colleague of mine, uh, and i hate to have to say these things this shouldn't have to be even said but i invited a colleague that i've known for years and really like and i invited her primarily because she's a black female surgeon and i wanted her in my corner because she'd been very supportive of me throughout this whole brouhaha with the acs and so it was me and, and this uh celia uh the surgeon um and uh, one of the regents of the acs uh, their general secretary and their newly hired director of diversity uh, to, to head the department of diversity, which they uh, put into the college uh, as part of the task force uh, recommendations. We had a very nice Zoom call, Marilyn. It was civil. It was reasoned. Uh, I don't think anybody's mind was changed. But I really left thinking, this is great. We had a conversation. Uh, This is what needs to happen, but this needs to happen throughout the ACS, including the membership, not just among, you know, three or four or five surgeons. But wouldn't you know it, within weeks of that Zoom call, uh, I discovered that I was blocked. I was completely blocked from access to the discussion forums. I was blocked from access to my private messages, and I was blocked from access even to the ACS member directory, which to me was really bizarre. When I inquired as to why I couldn't access these areas of the ACS website, the general secretary, uh, and I don't have any problem naming his name because he is not on my good list. Uh, Tyler Hughes is now the vice president-elect of the ACS. He was and still is the, uh, the editor who kind of runs the discussion forums and kind of acts as a chaperone, if you will, to make sure the surgeons behave He told me after the fact that I was blocked for life, and the reasons he gave me were that I was being continuously disrespectful in my comments, and that I was posting inappropriate non-clinical material on clinical forums. Now, that last one was a brand new rule that they had just instituted, which I and others objected to, and all of our objections were deleted. They were not even allowed to be posted. And as far as the language was concerned, I've gone through the entire comment thread, which I have hard copies of. I had won't call her a spy, but I have a a colleague in the ACF that sent me the transcripts of every uh, comment on the threads that ran for four months. And I guarantee you that as far as disrespect goes, there was way more thrown at me than I ever put out. And I I, uh, dispute that I was unprofessional. So those are the reasons given. So I asked, I asked for examples. I said, listen, give me an example of what I said that justifies a lifetime ban. And they have refused, consistently refused to give me a single example.
1: Well, I, this I, is I, this this story is it's, it's become commonplace now. And oh, it's I, happening to back. so many people in various professions. And it's really sad to see it happening in medicine. When we get back from the break, we'll go on with this story and how the ACS is buckling under and really going whole hog into this uh, wokeism and And uh, inviting some of these purveyors of of racism, the way I look at it, and to their meetings and whatnot. So we'll get into that after the break.
0: Cofix Rx Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. With premium ingredients,
1: Global Healing's Pure Plant Protein offers 20 grams of protein
0: per scoop, and it's the perfect way to maintain and build lean muscle while indulging yourself. It combines enzymes and probiotics to maximize nutrient absorption, improving digestion, and your gut health. Available in vanilla and chocolate flavors, elevate your protein consumption while supporting your overall wellness with Pure Plant Protein. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally.
1: Right now, I can actually talk about something pleasant.
0: <laughs>
1: <Wait>. <laughs> it's Co-fix RX. This is something that is saving me during cold and flu season, which is really upon us now. It's a really simple idea. It's a nasal spray by its name, you can see it was kind of invented during COVID, but it works for viruses and other germs. It's made of iodine and some xylitol, both of which have antiviral properties. And it's kind of like an airbag in a car. It reduces the impact of the viruses. Most of these uh, respiratory infections we get come through the nose. And so if you can catch it right there at the nose, it'll reduce the impact of uh, an illness. And if you do get a cold, hopefully it'll be less and hopefully it will not go all the way down to your lungs. Thousands of doctors and pharmacists recommend COFIX RX. And what I love about it, it was invented in the USA, and it's manufactured in the USA. It, you can get it at health food stores, medical offices, and pharmacies all over the country. So check our little Cofix RX button on the webpage and uh, read more about it. See if it's right for you. I love it, and knock on plastic. It's helped me avoid getting colds for what? Gee, how long have we had all this COVID problem? So three, four years. So give it a try. Before the break, I was talking to Dr. Bosshart about what happened with him and with his American College of Surgeons. This is his professional society. He was... And I'll use the expression blackballed from the uh, I guess it's it's like a discussion blog that where people can share their ideas and share their opinions because he had an opinion about all this racist indoctrination. So what's happened since then? What's the what one, tell me a couple of things. What's happened with you? What has the surgical society, have they backed off or have they put, jumped in with all four feet and hands into this anti-racism? What's going on?
0: Well, when I was trying to find some way to redress this within the society, it was never my intent to, to go public or to embarrass anybody. So I first reached out to the Board of Regents and said, uh, I'd like to appeal this. I don't think this is an appropriate um, punishment, uh, permanent ban, especially when you won't tell me what it is I have done. And um, what I received back was an email that basically told me that the ban was going to stand and that I had received due process. I then went to the uh, head of the Central Judiciary Committee, which is the, the, the department in the ACS whose responsibility is to discipline surgeons. So when surgeons are doing something that might justify disciplinary action, uh, this goes before the committee. They review it. Um, they decide whether there's merit to it or not. And then they recommend an appropriate punishment, which is then enacted by the leadership of the ACS. Um, that didn't happen with me. Uh, when I went to the the head of the Judiciary Committee, he informed me that my ban was never brought before the, the committee. Um, and that's one issue, of course, that it was not brought before them. But the, the most amazing thing was he said, well, because it's not brought to the committee, then it isn't technically a disciplinary matter. Uh, he's saying that a lifetime ban is not a disciplinary matter. And therefore, I did not merit a hearing, which is one of my rights as a fellow in the college, according to the bylaws. So this ban has been enacted and upheld in violation to the rules and the bylaws of the ACS. At that point, I had no recourse. I went public. I was able to get a column, uh, an op-ed per, uh, published in the Wall Street Journal. I have uh, been successful in getting a couple of other articles published in City Journal, and most recently, the National Review I uh, received some invitations. Uh, uh, I was on Tucker Carlson and a couple of other relatively uh, widely viewed um, shows uh, to basically lay out my situation. Uh, and throughout this, there's been nothing, no response. I've sent emails to people in the ACS. Nobody will answer me. No one will talk to me. Now, this will bring you up to now, to the current, okay, the current day. Uh, this ban was enacted in April 2022. I'm still banned. Um, you're familiar with Do No Harm, an organization that is pushing back against anti-racism and DEI in medicine, and uh, they sent a letter under their letterhead, a strongly worded letter saying that this, this uh, ban is uh, improper, is a violation, um, unjustified, that they uh, uh, demanded that I be reinstated. And, and they went so far, Maryland is to demand an apology, uh, which I, I told them might be a bridge too far, but, um, that letter was not responded to no answer whatsoever. So the, this brought us into the summer of this year. And I can, I knew that the ACS was having their annual convention, uh, in Boston, you know, what they call the Clinical Congress, which is uh, their their big meeting of the year. And I was trying to figure out what to do uh, with respect to this. Uh, so I reached out to Do No Harm, and I reached out to FAIR, FAIR and Medicine. Uh, and this is what and happened. Just,
1: just excuse me for the audience, FAIR, that stands for Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, F-A-I-R. And... Um, both of these organizations try to fight this sort of intolerance that, again, it's like reverse racism and reverse intolerance. So just so people know and they know what they can go look up. So go on. Sorry.
0: Well, there is, a, 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 I guess, a side branch of FAIR called FAIR and Medicine that I was somewhat on the ground floor when it was started. And um, so what happened is this. FAIR, Uh, got one of their attorneys to write a very strongly worded letter to the Board of Regents of the ACS in which they laid out uh, the violations, not just of the ACS's own bylaws, but more importantly, violations of my free speech rights. Uh, And they even uh, made an argument for violation of uh, Title VI of the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, in this action. And they're demanding a response. Uh, they're they're demanding that I be reinstated. And the letter demands a response. So I don't think this is a letter that they're going to be able to simply blow off or ignore. And that letter should have been delivered early this week at the headquarters of the ACS. The, the convention ran from last Sunday until this Wednesday, uh, October 22 through 25. So the leadership will have this letter at their headquarters when they get back to work um so that was one prong the second prong was that the national review very kindly accepted an article that i wrote uh regarding this uh the title was something like american college of surgeons doubles down on dei and anti-racism and the the interesting irony of this uh is that if you look around today this whole industry of diversity, equity, and inclusion that basically took shape and took off uh, around the time of early COVID and the George Floyd killing, um, this industry resulted in the hiring of literally tens of thousands of people into uh, DEI departments and DEI positions uh, in colleges and companies and institutions. And many of them now are being laid off because, number one, they're not productive of anything useful. Number two, in many cases, the things they've been doing have been considered to be negative and divisive. So there is a a growing wave of disenchantment with the whole DEI industry. Um, Black Lives Matter, which was a a big factor uh, back, uh, even you know back going back to Michael Brown. Uh, when he was killed, uh, they have basically imploded. I mean, there is an investigation into the founders of uh, Black Lives Matter for misuse of millions of the dollars that were donated to them without anything to show for it beyond some very expensive houses. And the other is that one of the, the things the ACS did that basically uh, completely... Uh, uh, Well, this showed the hypocrisy of what they were saying is that they were continually coming back to me and my accusation that they were taking on anti-racism. And they said, no, we're not doing that. And then they proceed to hold a retreat uh, in June of 2021 on diversity. And their invited keynote speaker was Ibram Kendi. And Kendi is the author of the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. He coined the term anti-racism. And he has been pretty much the voice of the DEI uh, vanguard Um, and, you know, leading with uh, the whole uh, idea of uh, systemic racism and and so forth. Well, it turns out that Kendi was uh, rewarded with a uh, position by Boston University as head of the uh, uh, Center for Anti-Racism Research, uh, funded to the tune of nearly $43 million dollars. And over three years, uh, over half that money is gone, and the center has yet to produce a single piece of original research. So Kendi is now being investigated for misuse of funds. So the whole DEI thing is starting to slowly fall apart, and yet the American College of Surgeons at their Congress uh, was offering educational courses and teaching uh, surgeons about anti-racism and how to apply this and teaching courses that involved... uh, Uh, learning about implicit bias, which is something which has been completely discredited. Implicit bias basically says that we all harbor unconscious prejudices and that these will um, factor into the way we interact with people of different races. Uh, They have never been able to show any consistent uh, uh, existence, if you will, of this in a, in a way that uh, supports that idea that we all harbor implicit bias.
1: well, I so- have to enter I have to interject there with this. and people uh, who are listening, you can look up implicit bias test and the Harvard implicit, I think it's Harvard. It's either Harvard, Yale, or Princeton. One of them made up this test. Um, the test will come up, but the thing that I find interesting when you answer the questions, Yes and no, one's with your right hand, one with your left hand. And I don't know about everybody listening. Most people are not fully ambidextrous and they're weaker on one side than the other. And I find it's more of a test of your manual dexterity and speed and answering questions. It's kind of like who can hit the Jeopardy buzzer the fastest than it is what's really going on in your brain. And I don't think anyone denies that we all have inside prejudices or um, unfounded things we think about people, you know, when somebody quote-unquote rubs you the wrong way. But to say that your life, your work, how you deal with others is governed by this implicit bias it, it doesn't even sound right. And if you take the test, you'll see that it's it's a manual dexterity test more than any sort of psychological test.
0: Yes, the, the test is actually called the implicit association test. So if you look up IAT or implicit association test, you'll find as much as you could possibly want on this. They've never shown consistent results with that. They, there's no... Um, you know, that something which is, is supposedly true should be provable by continually testing it, and you should have consistent results that support those conclusions. And that has never happened with the IAT. So that was the second prong, was the the article in the National Review in which I stated that uh, the ACF was doubling down on DEI and anti-racism with their courses at the Congress in spite of the, the ongoing uh, deconstruction if you will of the whole industry and then the last and final prong uh, came from do no harm uh, which has been extremely supportive and what they did is they put out a whole lot of targeted ads uh, that were sent on social media to um, uh, zip codes in and around the boston area and they they specifically look for physicians and these targeted ads are ads you can click on and when you click on them they take you to my page on the Do No Harm website, which kind of lays out my situation and what's happened um, and uh, gives links to some of the articles that I've had published. So uh, I think the ACS leadership probably had an interesting week, and I suspect if I were the fly in the wall, I would probably hear my name mentioned more than a few times over the course of the past few days. And now we have to wait and see what comes of all this.
1: Well, what I find interesting is uh, looking at the handouts and the offerings at the surgical meeting, there were so many things on DEI and anti-racism fundamentals and uh, implicit bias and all these things that I want my surgeon to learn how to do better surgery. Thank you very much.
0: Isn't that the truth? I mean, it is hard enough t- to do this profession without having to turn yourself into some kind of a social justice warrior at the same time. Um, the problem I see is is in this regard is that it's really diluting medical education, both in residency and medical school, because they're actually starting to contract some of the hours that are spent on, on basic sciences like anatomy, um, physiology, and that sort of thing in order to add courses in social justice and in uh, social determinants of health, uh, that sort of thing, um, they're trying to get the medical students to literally to become uh, little social justice warriors when they graduate and go out and continue to spread this message, as opposed to learning to be the best doctors they can be and and you know performing that particular profession before the patient that's in front of them.
1: Well, it's interesting because. And and this is not to say we should not be paying attention to the whole patient. And, and in my day, when we learned to take a history, there was a section called social history. And if you really sat down and talked to the patient, you would learn what their situation was and how that flavored what they were telling you. I mean, so many things, I can't tell you how many times I was doing a epidural steroid and and the person would say, you know, my back started hurting after my husband died, you know, and it was sort of this trigger, various triggers in life cause pain and cause all these things. So nobody's denying that there's a holistic approach to medicine, but you've got to know your basic science and basic medicine first. So we're going to talk more about that, the effects on patients of this uh, uni focus on racism and what can we do to improve medicine for everybody. So we'll get on that after the break.
0: Change in the world one person at a time. Out loud.
1: So before the break, we were talking about what all this focus, over-focus on racism, in, which to me is, is in not a productive way. What's this doing with patients and what effect do you think this has on the quality of care?
0: Well, I, I can't help but imagine that quality of care is going to go down for a number of reasons. Um, one reason, of course, is that you know for patients and doctors to be able to work together and for the doctor to do the best for the patient and the patient to get the best outcome, there has to be a strong degree of trust. And if you're going to throw racism into the mix, you are going to absolutely destroy that trust. And I think that's that's where it's going to start. And I think we've seen that already a little bit with uh, what I heard was a lot of, uh, for example, vaccine hesitancy among a lot of um, black uh, communities and black neighborhoods uh, because of the history of, of, of some racist history in medicine, which is inescapable. And you can't, you can't ignore and you can't change and you can't uh, wipe out the past. But there were things done in the past that were uh, pretty bad. Uh, and that has carried over. And all we're doing is, is basically fomenting more and more distrust. Uh, the other thing is to try to, to correct the problem. Uh, well, first off, we haven't addressed the problem, uh, Marilyn. I don't think racism is the source of these problems. I think that we, are, we have uh, made up a problem uh, to fit an ideology, uh, critical race theory, which claimed that everything, everything to do with human interaction is basically racist. It's a a victim versus victimizer type of a relationship. And so all of our solutions are going to be directed to that problem. And so they're not going to solve the real problem. The real problems, uh, I think you even mentioned it, were things like access to care, um, to to look at the other uh, issues that go into uh, uh, whether or not a particular group of people are going to Obtain the best possible results from medical care, uh, being able to buy medications, not having transportation to go to a doctor's appointment, uh, not being uh, able to get follow up appointments, um, social issues. You know, you have uh, uh, homes with a, a single parent, which is the, the predominance of homes for many minorities, uh, where children are not going to get the same degree of, of attention and care, and that's going to have an impact on their health later. Uh, communities that don't have access to to healthy foods, uh, uh, communities without a grocery store, for example. There's been a number of incidents where some of the grocery stores are pulling out of communities because of the uh, issues of uh, high crime and uh, shoplifting and and poor security. And so, I mean, when you start talking about this, you realize there are so many areas that need to be looked at. And I can't say I have all the answers but I can say that when you take an organization whose focus needs to be surgery and surgeons and excellence in surgery, and you start to dilute that by trying to push them out into the political arena and the the sociological arena to be doing things that they are not really able to do well, um, we're not social workers. We're not trained as social workers. We're not uh, supposed to be uh, taking on that role, and yet to a great extent, this is what is being expected of both medical students and surgeons in training. Well, the thing that's
1: interesting, and and it's true, we aren't social workers, and we don't know the best way to deal with these things. Certainly, we are first responders in the sense of somebody comes into the office. This has been addressed in the arena of of, uh, domestic violence. If there's something you suspect you're supposed to alert the proper authorities. And so, certainly, if you see some child in tattered rags, and you can tell that his wounds are not going to remain clean, that he's not somebody who's an ideal candidate for outpatient, and even though the insurance says, well, we won't pay for inpatient, and this is, you know, (laughs) people forget that there's with third-party payers in the mix, that has changed a lot of things. We used to be able to treat patients as a whole and leave them in the hospital an extra couple of days if you didn't think their home was that clean and you wanted to wait till their wound completely healed before, you know, kind of having to throw them back out into the wolves you can't do that anymore. The insurance is not going to pay for that extra day or two in the hospital. And this is a problem. And people forget about this, that insurance is not paying for us to be a social worker. And we can report it. And hopefully, doctors will. But then you get into the whole thing. Now, you're in a specialty, fortunately, we're. You can make some of your own time, but these primary care doctors, internists, where they have been reduced to factory workers who work in some of these big conglomerates, where they have seven to 10 minutes with the patient. How do you learn about their whole life in seven to 10 minutes? So there's this whole picture. It's not just one thing, and you can't just say, oh, it's racism, without looking at what's happened in medical care, that what's happened to that sense of doctor and patient, and he's my patient, the individual patient. He's not the patient of the giant corporation. Now, here I've blathered on and on, but this, this is the bugaboo to me, is that there's a bigger picture to all this and calling stuff racism seems like the easy way out. What say you.
0: I think it's the easy way out. I think it's also the lazy way out. I think people aren't willing to, to look beyond that. There's also an, and a component of ideology of people that have this idea of a constant um, uh, struggle between groups, whether it's the traditional Marxist groups of the the proletariat and the bourgeois, the haves and the haves-not, or whether it's a struggle between, you know, minorities, uh, non-whites and whites, for example. And they promote this particular view of the world, and that infuses everything. And basically, they're not looking to fix things. They're looking to basically take down the institutions, you know, the the Black Lives Matter, if you look at their manifesto, uh, they're there to take things down. They're anti-capitalist. Uh, they're anti-family. Um, uh, they're anti-democracy. Uh, it's, it's a very nihilistic kind of way of looking at things. Um, I don't think there's an answer to that unless, as you said, people that are counter to this, who I think are the majority, begin to step up and say, this is wrong. This is not the way it is. And we're not going to solve the problems by looking at each other and seeing only a person of one color or another. We have to start getting together and figuring out, okay, why are these problems occurring and and try and start sifting through solutions? I, I wanted to say one thing, Marilyn, my daughter is a licensed clinical social worker. And, uh, I've had the opportunity, I would say the privilege of seeing her work a few times. And I am amazed at what she can do. I mean, she has trained for six years, four years of college and two more years of the master's, and then went on to do additional self-study to become a, uh, a certified licensed clinical social worker. And there's no way that I could do the things she does. I mean, I, if I had a patient that has social issues that I feel will impact their care, I can, with confidence, turn them over to a properly trained person who knows how to deal with these things. And I can devote myself back to to patient care again, which is what I was trained to do. And, and that's my my purpose and the, the thing that I love to do and what I do the best. Um, so I don't know that that there's a solution within an organization like the ACS to solve these problems. And I think that by trying to do that, I think that they are Taking away the the purpose of the the uh, organization that supports surgery and diverting it, hijacking it, I would say, to something unrelated and really terribly unhelpful
1: well, and what you don't have the skills for, as you just pointed out, that there's somebody who's trained to know how to deal. And they know the proper resources. My goodness, I think more helpful in a doctor's office would be a list of who do you call? Just like how people have their 911 fire department, police department, trash, you know, all the stuff that you keep up in your kitchen wall. And that in a doctor's office and in the front office where there's a full list of, okay, This is who we're gonna call and give a referral to. But then that opens up a whole nother problem is you can give referrals, but people may not go. There might not be a follow up. So all there's the devil is in the details because we can say all these wonderful things like have mobile clinics, which have been very successful. In the rural areas, the dollar stores are actually starting to have mobile clinics. And people, it's both funny to hear people's comments about it, because some people think, You think I want to go to a doctor at the dollar store? But you know, then after they kind of go, it's like, well, it's convenient and there's dollar stores in a lot of places. So People are trying to come up with these solutions to get care out to everybody. But there's a lot of flies in that ointment. And then there's that old expression, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And that's where it comes back to when you were talking about trust. You can tell the patient, well, we can refer you to so-and-so who can help you out you know, with you getting food stamps or whatever it might be that you need. But if they don't trust the system because they've had bad experiences, then there you are, you're hamstrung there. So there's all sorts of things that go into this pie. And that's why it's so bothersome to see some course in DEI and you know anti-racism. And it completely ignores all the loose ends that go in to having a good health outcome.
0: Marilyn, here's one thing that really, really strikes me as probably the single most significant um, factor that calls into question the, the motivation, the agenda, the integrity of the people that are doing these things, and that is the silencing and the cancellation, the deplatforming, the censorship, When the ACS will uh, disallow discussion and debate on an issue and go so far as to take a a member in good standing like myself and completely silence them without due process, that tells me that, calls into question the entire legitimacy of the enterprise. Whatever they are doing that I have objected to that they feel they have to silence me for, that tells me a lot. And the fact that this is not being discussed by the general membership, it's not been brought forth at the annual meetings to say, hey, you know, the leadership is proposing to do this. Uh, We need to have a discussion and a vote on this. None of that has ever taken place. Um, This has been done by a few ideologues in the leadership that are basically the tail wagging the dog and pulling them along. And my fear is that an organization with a, a very storied history that has done tremendous good uh, over generations, is at risk of being completely delegitimized and, and, cre- and caused to be a, um, a non-viable institution because of what's happening. Uh, a little factoid, Marilyn, do you know when the ACS admitted the first black surgeon as a fellow in the ACS? Uh,
1: when was, now, it was that founded,
0: it was founded when? in 1913 so it's been around for well over a hundred years so when do you think they admitted the first black surgeon as a fellow in the ACS
1: oh I I would only hazard to guess that it was in the 40s sometime
0: 1913 Wow so right and then, that was the same year they admitted the first four women surgeons
1: I'll be darned. Well,
0: there you go. Here they are calling this a racist organization.
1: Well, it's interesting because the AMA did not have Black physicians, and nor did bar associations. The way bar associations worked is you had to be recommended by somebody who was already in there. And some of the local medical associations were that way, so... If you couldn't get a white person to recommend you, you couldn't get in. And that's why black people started their own organizations. So it's certainly not denying that there's been bigotry, and there's certainly been Jewish bigotry. I trained at Beth Israel, which started because Mass General didn't want the Jewish doctors there. So there's always been bigotry it's not like we've got halos over our head in medicine but we are trying and calling people racist doesn't unite us
0: i mean instead of pointing out the progress made over over 100 years they basically couldn't jump fast enough to claim how racist they are and how they have to transform uh the organization uh, to deal with that racism Um, They could have pointed out these things that I've just told you. They could point out that the executive director of the ACS today is a black female. And if you look at the roster of members, there are a lot of black surgeons. Now, are there exactly 13% black surgeons in the ACS? Well, I don't think so. Uh, But the idea that, you know, you need to have proportionate representation uh, boils down to a single word. And this is something that I didn't make up. Thomas Sowell said this. Uh, the, the Black uh, economist, who's a, a brilliant uh, speaker for discrimination and disparities, uh, and the word he uses is quotas. You're talking about quotas now. If you have to have 13% Blacks in the ACS and 7% Latino and and however many percent Asians, you're talking quotas, whether you admit that or not. And I think anyone would would agree that to do things on a quota basis is going to simply reduce quality because you're going to have to to accept people based on something other than merit and other than excellence. You're going to have to accept them on the basis of pigmentation and ethnicity.
1: Well, not even that. That leaves out any personal agency. What if somebody just doesn't want to do it? I mean, people are drawn to certain specialties for certain reasons. Some people aren't good with their hands. Some people don't like talking to patients. That's why everybody's glad there's a specialty called pathology. There's people who are microscope nerds, and you can't make them go be something else. So, the whole thing just, um, it's disgusting. And so many people say, uh, you know, the ACLU always says the first target of censorship is rarely the last. Carl Sagan, as well as our founding fathers, said the uh, solution to a speech you don't like is more speech. And so all of this is very anti American and kind of goes against the name of your organization. And what goes against us right now is the clock. We have run out of time. And so I want to thank you, doctor, for coming on the show and telling us your story.
0: Marilyn, thank you so much for the opportunity. Can I do one quick plug before I go? For my, oh. uh, I have a petition out there. Uh, oh. The petition is on change.org, the, uh, the website change.org. And if you look that up, you can put in reinstatement on American College of Surgeons communities. And that's my petition.
1: Okay. Well, everybody remember that. And I'll put that link down in the written blurb about the show. So thanks again, doctor.
0: Thank you, Marilyn. It's been delightful.
1: And thank you, everybody, for listening to America Out Loud Pulse As you know, we've got our email feature where if you have a question for the host or one of the guests, you can email. First names are fine. And the email link is right there on the page of the uh, show. And uh, send that on in. We've got another feature. It's, well, a few months old now. It's americaoutloud.shop. And that has products from Healthy Cell and you can get CoFix Rx there. Got a great bookstore with uh, books written by our guests and other books of interest. And we have a discount code out loud. Just put that in when you make a purchase to get your discount. So as I always say, whether you agree or have other opinions, please share the show. Thanks again for listening. And until next week... Say it loud, I'm free and I'm proud.